Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into the Song of Ice and Fire weekly podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm picking up where I left off last time with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I covered Book 4, Chapter 7, and most of Chapter 8 in The Lord of the Rings, and this week we're going to wrap up Book 4, Chapter 8 of The Lord of the Rings, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol. I left off last time with Sauron's army emerging from Minas Morgul, a host of dead silence set on conquering Gondor and beyond. And leading them on, of course, is the Witch King, chief of the Nazgul. Now, Sauron himself isn't really a physical entity at this point. He's more like a voice in your head. So the Witch King is the most potent embodiment of evil we see in the series, even more than the Balrog. And we've seen him before, as Frodo reminds us. He's the one who stabbed Frodo at Weathertop, an act of cruelty and defilement so powerful that it basically prevents Frodo from being happy on Middle-earth after the war is done, along with other literal and metaphorical wounds he takes along the way. But now the Witch King is back from his fall at Rivendell, and he has changed to match the changing scope of the story. Remember when the story was just like a handful of hobbits on a hill being pursued by one rider in black? Now we've seen it turn into a cross-continental struggle for survival. And so the Witch King is reborn as a general, like he was back in the day when he destroyed the northern kingdom of Arnor, Aragorn's home turf. He's even got his own crown. In his mind, this is his return of the king, an image of man given over wholly to power. That crown flickers with a perilous light, Tolkien writes, just like his city, the perversion of a soul. And like I said last week, this is a chapter all about eyes. The Witch King senses the ring, and his unseen eyes sweep through the shadows. Not literal eyes, but like Sauron's eye, an eye you feel inside. And Frodo feels compelled to stare back, unable to wink or withdraw, as Tolkien writes. And the ring, round like Sauron's eye, is calling him. It tried to lead Frodo into the city. It slowed him down as he climbed, and now it tries to make him put the ring on. It's not just about annihilation, but temptation. The enemy will not even kill you so much as remake you in his own image. That's what happened to the Ringwraiths. This time, though, Frodo isn't really tempted. He has no more illusions about the Ring. Unlike Boromir, he knows it won't give him the power to resist Sauron. And unlike Gollum, he knows the Ring doesn't, you know, love him back. So instead, Frodo watches as if from outside his own body as the power of the Ring draws his finger close. Tolkien describes it as Frodo reading a story. It's not happening to me, it's happening to someone else. And in a way, it is. He's experiencing a version of what other people have felt, what Bilbo felt, probably Isildur as well. But Frodo's own will, his individual soul so lacking in the Ringwraiths, restores itself with another object, Galadriel's vial of light that she gave him on the way out of Lothlorien. It's the flip side of the ring, and even more so of the Tower of Minas Morgul, lit up with an unhealthy, corrupted light. Galadriel's gift is the Paradise Lost, and even the memory of it is enough for Frodo to resist the ring. At least for now. The Witch King stops hunting and resumes his task. Tolkien takes this briefly inside his head to show us that he's ruled by the will of Sauron. Unlike Frodo, there's no resistance left. I have my marching orders. My master signaled me to make war on the west, and so I shall. And then Tolkien delivers the punchline. This isn't even the biggest army Sauron has. This is like the B-team comparison to what he's got in store for Middle-earth. Despair strikes Frodo, even worse than at the Black Gate. That at least was just a defensive fortification. 
Now Mordor is on the offense, and Frodo has met and befriended the men who are on the front line against this overwhelming force. Frodo abandons hope in favor of regret. I just took too long, and now everyone's going to die because of me. I promised to do the right thing. I promised everyone. I promised Gandalf. I promised myself, and I failed. Even if I somehow succeed at this point, it will be for nothing. The world will already be reduced to a wasteland. There will be no one left to tell, he thinks. I think that's the ultimate horror for Tolkien. No more stories. And so heartbreaking to read. It's Sam, of course, who saves the day. The hidden, humble hero is vital to the story structure as the protagonist Frodo. Tolkien describes Sam's voice so beautifully, as being like a shaft of sunlight on a shire morning, with the doors opening, the day calling, lots to eat and drink, lot of nothing to do. It's so potent that Frodo expects Sam to tell him breakfast is ready, like it was all a dream and they're back at home. It's so bittersweet because it's only a memory, as Frodo thinks. He left that joyful world behind for its total opposite, and now his home seems like a dead dream. But it can be reborn, and will be. Frodo comes to and realizes that the army has gone, and taken his weakness with it as he thinks about it. He still despairs, but he realizes that it doesn't really matter. Circumstances haven't changed in terms of what he has to do, what he set out to do. It's the grim clarity of having nothing left to lose. Tolkien expresses the core of the story as simply as Sam might. What he had to do, he had to do. Even more powerful is Frodo deciding that it really makes no difference to him whether anyone knows about it, all the men and elves and wizards he met along the way. By putting Frodo into contact with Faramir and Athelion, Tolkien connected Frodo's story to the war. Now he decouples them again, focusing Frodo on the path in front of him. Making it into the stories like Bilbo isn't the point. It's the existentialist heroism of doing what you can with no thought of reward. No chance and no choice. The restoration of Frodo's soul charges up Galadriel's vial of light like a battery, a touch of divine grace. And they are going to need all the HP and defensive spells they can get, as Gollum leads them from darkness into, well, deeper darkness. The climb is difficult and dangerous, up winding narrow stairs, creeping along, finding the stairs with their fingers. It's a mythic messianic gauntlet for Frodo, traversing the wasteland as he has been all book, but it also represents the depths of Gollum's soul into which they are descending. His frenzied fear fades, and all of a sudden he's smiling and chuckling at them, telling them they're getting closer now, you'll see, oh, you'll see. Even on a first read, you can tell things are about to go very wrong. And in case you didn't, Frodo spots a tower at the top of the pass. The red light glowing in Mordor like a fiery jewel gives it away. It seems to be shining through the top of the tower. The Tower of Kirith Ungol is basically a miniature version of Sauron's Dark Tower. It's like a microcosm of Mordor, as I'll get into later. And you can already see that here, that the red light is like a miniature version of Sauron's eye. Sam is furious at Gollum's treachery, but he reminds them, again, that all the ways into Mordor are guarded. This was always a long shot, a suicide mission, a fool's hope, as Gandalf says. And as with the temptation of the ring earlier, Frodo doesn't even feel scared anymore. Just tired. He can't even think about the task itself. It's too hopeless. And paradoxically, it feels more distant the closer he gets to it. Everything shrinks down for Frodo, like the darkness closing in all around. It's just one impossible task after another. And if he can complete this one, the reward is getting to complete the next one. It's the exhaustion of hope reduced to dull persistence. I can't go on. I'll go on. They stop for what 
feels like a final meal to them, as if they're condemned prisoners, Gollum their executioner, and Mordor the land of the dead. We've come full circle in Book 4. We started in the barren hills of the Emimuil, and now here we are in the equally bleak mountains of Mordor. They were running low on supplies then, and now they are again. Frodo reminds us that Faramir said not to drink the water here. Even the elements of the land are twisted and corrupted, forced into the service of the enemy. They can't trust anything, or anyone. It's a curse, Frodo says. This is their destiny. This is their doom. It's in this moment, when all their hobbit optimism seems finally spent, that Sam takes refuge in, what else, stories. Uh, Taking refuge is not quite right, maybe. It's more that Sam understands stories on a deeper and more complicated level now. Like Frodo, Sam used to long for adventure, and thought of adventure and home as irreconcilable, like oil and water. Adventure is something you go out and get, something you want precisely because it's so different from the dull domestic routine. But now Sam sees that this is a shallow and sheltered way of looking at things. His life in the Shire only seemed dull because he was used to it, he didn't know anything else. And adventures only seemed exciting because they were mysterious. Now he realizes that it's not so clear-cut as just choosing to be the main character. When you're inside a story, it feels more like the story chose you. That the path showed up at your door one day and escorted you into the future, like it or not. You still have your chances and your choices, it's just that they only take shape in retrospect. The perspective of a reader and the perspective of a character are very different. Tolkien's breaking the fourth wall here, allowing us to take part in the conversation. Because really what Sam is talking about is us, is his awareness that there might be someone reading his story someday. And what's good for characters, he says, is not good for readers, and vice versa. What we need out of a story is danger and drama, but that's no fun to live through. The characters don't know what kind of end they'll come to. They have no guarantees. And that's the whole point, Frodo says. Their destiny may be written, but they haven't read it, which means it's still their choices that define it. And this is Tolkien addressing maybe the oldest of all human dilemmas, whether or not we're really in charge of what happens, whether we really control our fate. Even as he reminds us that the hobbits exist in a constructed universe, controlled by the author, he shows us how they have their own stories, the legendarium of Tolkien's universe, Baron and the Silmarils, all the great myths of the past like those Faramir told them about. It all keeps going back like that, a shell game of narrative and time. Even as we always exist in the present, we're the future of the past, and the past of the future. Those borders may seem unbreakable, but we reach past them all the same. Frodo carries the light of a Silmaril with them, memory given form in defiance of time. The story never ends at all, Sam realizes, no more than the road, a circle like the ring. When he describes Bilbo going home to find it the same but different, he is unknowingly describing his own story, the final words of Lord of the Rings. Well, I'm back. The story never ends, Frodo agrees, but we do. We're vessels for story, like the glass vial he carries is a vessel for light. The light endures, the vessel breaks. And you can see Tolkien's Christian beliefs coming to the fore here. All Sam wants now is exactly that which he was trying to escape. Home and hearth, working in the garden in the sunlight. As Quentin Martell learned in A Song of Ice and Fire, adventure stinks. Frodo and Sam have been staring death in the face all through book four. Now they finally ask the terrifying question. What will be left of us if we don't make it back? So they tell their own story, imagining excited hobbit children cheering them on as their favorite characters. 
Frodo laughs, as he did when Sam reminded him of the songs of the Oliphant, because this, more than anything he can do, gives him hope for the future. If there are stories in the future, well, that means we won, because Sauron would end all the stories for good. And it's so moving to read both Sam and Frodo insist the audience would want to hear about the other one. You're the main character. No, you are. In truth, they both are. Frodo reminds us, though, that we're about to hit the lowest point. The point of no return in which all seems lost. And it might be so bleak that, as with the Red Wedding, the reader no longer wants to keep reading. The dreamer must awaken to reality. Then again, Sam says, stories were never supposed to just mimic reality, right? He's critically thinking about the relationship between story and life. Things that would be unbearable and just meaninglessly awful in reality can take on different shades of meaning in a story. Hell, Sam says, even Gollum could be the hero of his own story. Even Gollum liked stories, once upon a time. Tolkien is following up on what Gandalf said near the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, that you can't just dismiss Gollum as a worthless villain and stop thinking about him. You have to understand him in the context of his own story. Sam has been unwilling to do that, in part because he lacks Frodo's tortured empathy for Gollum, derived as that is from the ring. When Sam turns around and finds Gollum gone, he assumes he's up to no good, maybe even alerting the orcs up in that tower. Frodo says that doesn't make any sense, and Sam realizes he's right. That would mean giving up the precious to the enemy. And this is Tolkien setting the audience up for the big reveal of Shelob, leading us logically there. We know Gollum is watching and waiting for something. We just don't know what. Not yet. Frodo is right. They have no practical option but to trust Gollum. Same thing he told Faramir. He's also right that Gollum doesn't have one coherent master plan. He's divided against himself, jumbled up inside in a way that reflects the more complex, ambiguous stories Sam was just talking about. Sam, though, is right that the slinker and stinker halves, as he calls them, are converging, forced to a decision point, a crucial character choice, like they were saying. And we see that play out as the chapter ends. Tolkien switches to Gollum's POV, and this kind of intimate, sorrowful moment is why Gollum is probably my favorite character in Lord of the Rings, if I had to pick just one. He's struck by the sight of Frodo and Sam asleep, holding each other, a display of innocence in this fallen world all around them. And all the words that Tolkien uses, all his word choices, emphasize the delicacy of it, the fragility, how he describes one of Sam's hands resting softly on Frodo's breast. You don't even want to breathe too hard in case you disturb them. They are vulnerable to Gollum. Right here, right now, he could do whatever he wants. He could get the precious back from the hobbitses who stole it and then betrayed him to wicked men. But that vulnerability also means trust. And that trust has a real effect on Gollum. He might be thinking that's how he and Deagle used to look, back when his only name was Smeagol. He fights inside himself, the light and the dark, and then he reaches out to touch Frodo's knee, as softly as Sam is, like he's one of them, like he belongs. In this moment, Tolkien writes, if the hobbits had woken up, they would see that Gollum looks like them, or maybe more like Bilbo, an impossibly old hobbit remembering what it was to be young before the ring robbed him of the shape of his own story. But then Sam does wake up, hearing Frodo cry out in his sleep, and he can only interpret Gollum's actions as an attack. He says Gollum was sneaking. He calls Gollum a villain, forcing him back into the only role he understands. Right after saying Gollum could be the hero of his own story, Sam can only think in terms of his own. And this is self-fulfilling. You treat Gollum like a villain, and he'll be one. As Tyrion says, I wish I was the monster you think I am. Gollum is offended that Sam calls him a sneak, complaining about it to Frodo, 
But when Sam asks what Gollum was up to, he says sneaking. Earlier, the hobbits were talking about the different perspectives of readers and characters, and now Tolkien shows us the difference. We know that Gollum was just as close as he can get to love, and we know that's why he's reacting so harshly to Sam's insult. Gollum made himself vulnerable, and now he's feeling wounded for it. But Sam doesn't know that, and the first-time reader doesn't know where this is leading. Only on reread can you spot the foreshadowing in Gollum being described as spider-like after Sam insults him. And in Gollum saying that there will be no rest, no food, not yet. His plan is to turn the hobbits into food, and then they'll rest, the eternal rest of the grave. So each week I've been wrapping up these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations by Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago and how they've handled each stretch of the material. The movie adaptation of Return of the King uh, ramps up the conflict between Frodo, Sam, and Gollum in a way that does feel a little forced with the specific gimmick of the food and having Frodo think that Sam has been stealing the food and then Frodo actively sends Sam away. That is, I think you can tell that they are ramping up the stakes as high as they can for the drama of it all. It does feel a little artificial. I think it makes sense that it hinges on Sam's furious, bitter anger toward Gollum, because even as the filmmakers make that more explicitly violent, that is a clear, consistent part of his character in the books, and it does produce interesting conflict, not only between him and Gollum, but between him and Frodo. So I'm overall fine with them ginning up some extra character drama out of that, especially since it does lead to the, the same powerful place once you get to Shelob's lair and the Orc of Kirith Ungol. This part of the movie is also notable for that just vertigo-inducing trip up the stair. They really capture the atmosphere from the books where it feels like if they go an inch to either side, they're going to fall, that this, this path Gollum is taking them on barely exists. It's, it's such a, a narrow path to hope. And my favorite part of this chapter, the discussion between Frodo and Sam about their part in stories, their part in the future, that happens at the end of Two Towers, which I think is, is really nice. It adds a little uh, emotional beat to the end of that movie, which otherwise just kind of does end with them proceeding on their quest. We get a glimpse of Mordor roll credits. So that, that intimate moment where Frodo and Sam imagine themselves in the story, hoping the audience will cheer them on long after they're gone, that is a nice note to go out on. And hey, we're still watching and talking about those movies, so their wish came true. And that is going to wrap us up for this week in The Lord of the Rings. Thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch of other great benefits. We've been doing the Star Wars episodes over there, and we're going to have a great guest on, Ara, a.k.a. I Eat Zebra, for the episode on the final act of Phantom Menace. That's going to be a lot of fun, so check out our Patreon if you haven't already. You can follow us at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can follow me, at Poor Quentin, on Twitter. So next week, we are going to wrap up Book 4 of The Lord of the Rings with Chapters 9 and 10, Shelob's Lair and the Choices of Master Samwise. And we're going to have a guest on for that one. Benjamin Nielsen, who writes and speaks really well about Tolkien, is going to be joining us for that one. I'm really looking forward to that. Then I'm probably going to do a couple more guest episodes before jumping back in with book five of The Lord of the Rings and get a few chapters into that before Jeff returns to the podcast. So thank you again so much for listening, and we will see you next week for book four, chapters nine and ten of The Lord of the Rings.